This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey and former U.S. attorney. Roger and Governor Christie discussed his speech in the Time for Choosing series at the Reagan Library, as well as the future of the Republican Party and upcoming elections. Governor Chris Christie, welcome to the show. Roger, happy to join you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always fun to engage with you, Governor Christie. And, um, of course, you're the former two-term governor of New Jersey, uh, really heralded career in, in public office and in public service. Uh, of course, served as prosecutor and U.S. attorney. Do you miss being in the governor's mansion? You know, I never lived in the mansion. Um, you know, we made a decision right when we were running. We had children— our children at that time were, were very young. They were aged from 16 to 6. So they were all in grade school, middle school, high school years. And we just thought there was no way you could move them um, and be fair to them. So we stayed in our home, um, never lived in the mansion, visited there, uh, had events there. Um, but I do miss being governor. I mean, there's no doubt it was, a, it was an extraordinary job. Uh, I loved every day that I had it. Um, and I do miss it. I miss being able to make things happen. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the greatest parts of being a governor. If you really, really want to make something happen, you have the ability to give it your best try. So let me pursue that, because, of course, not only did you have a, 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 you know, the time as governor, but also uh, a great career as a prosecutor. Is it better to govern or to prosecute? If you're asking me which job I enjoyed more, I would tell you U.S. attorney. Um, because U.S. attorney was a job where it was all pure good, Roger. I mean, every day your job was to make sure that justice was done. And that was your only job. And you didn't have to worry about making deals, um, political cross currents. Most of the time you have to worry about media coverage. You didn't have to worry about local politics that might impact you. All the things you have to worry about when you're governor in making decisions didn't impact you at all as U.S. attorney. As U.S. attorney was, what are the facts? What can we prove beyond a reasonable doubt? And what's that lead us to do to make sure justice is done? Man, that is such a great job that um, that for seven years, if I had to choose between the two, I wouldn't want to, but if I had to, United States attorney was an extraordinary job. And I, I'll tell you a quick side note yeah. that um, when I first uh, met uh, President Bill Clinton, uh, I met him ironically, um, at Donald Trump's wedding, um, to Melania Trump. And, and, uh, and President Clinton had no idea who I was, nor did anybody else for that matter. And, and he came up to me and asked me what I did for a living. And I said, it was the United States attorney in New Jersey. And he just got this huge smile on his face. And he said, you know, you're not going to believe this. He said, I mean, I've been attorney general of Arkansas, governor of Arkansas, and president. He said, but United States attorney was the one job that I wanted that I never got. Uh, in public life. He said, because to stand up in court and say, I represent the United States of America, he said, I think it would have been one of the coolest things to do as a, as a, as a lawyer. And uh, and I agree with him. Yeah, uh, gr great story. And um, I'm a lawyer by training, uh, left it. Uh, but I, I it resonates what you said. That makes a lot of sense to me. So the country obviously knows you as as a former governor and a leading voice in the conservative movement and, and Republican Party. You're obviously uh, 
offer your commentary on, on network TV regularly for political events. The Reagan Foundation, of course, had you uh, as one of our, our speakers participating in the Time for Choosing series not too long ago. Uh, and as our listeners and viewers know, this is a series where the Reagan Foundation uh, brings those leading voices to talk about the future of the Republican Party, where the party's succeeding, where it's failing, why uh, someone should be a Republican, uh, and what the Republican Party needs to do to uh, get the party back in power and really to advance uh, the interests of, uh, of the nation. Uh, you gave a great speech, and we're grateful for it. I thought we'd just maybe start just talk about uh, some of the themes in that speech, unpack them a bit. Uh, for, those, for those who watched it, it was, you, it was a tough start, not because of anything you did, but you knocked the power out, or, or someone did. I don't know if it was the Chinese or, or President Trump or, or Democrats. Somebody was coming after you to start that. Uh, I, think <laughs> that might have been, I think it might have been Gavin Newsom just through his incompetence, Roger. You know, rolling rolling brownouts, you know, across California. His Gavin yeah. doesn't know what he's doing. I don't know who it was. But, yeah, that was a little, that was a little disconcerting as the microphone and the power went out right as I was walking up to the stage. Uh, you didn't miss a beat, and—, and uh, you got that great voice, that booming voice. So it, you know, we we didn't have to kind of wait for the power to go back on for you to get started. That, but that was, it just took off from there, shall we say? Uh, but one of the things that you emphasize, and, and a key uh, theme in that speech, which uh, I want to begin with, was your emphasis on quote unquote hard truths, and that was really the the message throughout uh, the speech. Tell us about the hard truths you wanted to convey, not only to those in the room, the hundreds in the room at the Reagan Library, but really to, to the nation as a whole. Well, look, I think that, you know, all too often our politics has devolved into just telling people what they want to hear and, and not telling them the things that in their heart they know is out, are out there as challenges for our country, but that, um, you know, our political leaders, many of them have not wanted to put out front and, and talking about the fact that we, we, we overspend and, and we can't continue to run the debt that we're running right now. To say that you know our entitlement programs need to be reformed to make sure that they're there for generations to come. To make sure we talk about America's role in the world and that part of the price we pay for being wealthy and free is an obligation that we have, I believe, to the rest of the world to make sure that freedom is protected around the world. Because free countries around the world are not a threat to America. It's despotism, communism, uh, and those type of governments, as we can see right now, that turn out to be the threat to America and to peace and freedom around the world. And so we have a lot of obligations uh, as Americans, and sometimes I know we can feel overwhelmed. But when we do, I feel like the hard truth we need to tell folks is, listen, this is the price you pay for living in the greatest country in the world with the greatest quality of life the most freedom and liberty. And we have an obligation to try to make sure that others can, can live the same kind of life, but also to understand that it protects our way of life by making sure there's more freedom around the world and less despotism. Yeah, and, and of course, your, your speech uh, was prior to uh, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine and, and just the naked aggression and, and um, just the, the humanitarian disaster that, that he's responsible for in Ukraine. And so that hard truth is one that I think is something that most Americans who perhaps weren't convinced by it or elected leaders weren't focusing on are, are now seeing uh, that in, in, you know, in clear terms. But, you know, in addition to what you were just hitting on, a number of hard truths as it relates to 
policy areas, leadership in the world, you just hit on, of course, the debt, um, some of these other entitlement programs that really need to uh, have reform so they can be sustainable. You also hit on kind of the tone and tenor in, in, in the party and it, you know, quote, quote, you, you're referring to the lunatics, you know, fringe. And he said, real leaders don't follow polls. They f- change them. And tell us about that. And I want to follow up with something else that you kind of the, the Reagan analogy that you introduced in the speech. Well, look, I, I do believe that um, we have become an angry party and a grievance party. Now, look, when you watch the Biden administration as a Republican, there's plenty to be angry about. And so I'm not saying I'm not angry, but what we have to do is to channel that into something that's positive and productive. And to do that, we have to persuade a majority of the country that our point of view, our policy prescription, our way to governing the country is preferable to what they're getting right now from Joe Biden. And if all we're doing is looking backwards and talking about grievances from 2020 and before, uh, and complaining and moaning about how we were cheated or mistreated, uh, that is not going to inspire the American people. What inspires the American people is hope for tomorrow. And that's what we have to provide as a party. We need to change our tone and we need to change our content. Uh, and that was part of the hard truth I was trying to tell that night. The ring lever, it's easier to be angry. It's harder to channel that anger into something that's productive and inspires people. Um, and as far as the quote about, you know, um, uh, polls uh, not following them, but changing them, mm-hmm. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times in New Jersey I would lay out a policy that I felt strongly about. And I have the press say to me, well, that doesn't poll very well, Governor. And I go, well, watch how it polls after I get done. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's your job to go out there. And I had 150 town hall meetings during my eight years as governor uh, across New Jersey on all different kinds of topics. And it was my job to go out there and persuade. And to change minds. Uh, and, and if I couldn't, well, then I couldn't pursue the policies that I thought were best. But more times than not, I was able to persuade people to come around. And that's the job, at least one of the jobs of a leader, is to persuade people to follow them. You know, yeah, I, a follower I, without leaders is just a guy out for a walk, right? So, you know, <laughs> let's let's just understand that. Understand that you can only be a leader if you can persuade. Yeah, I mean that obviously Reagan is a great communicator. I'm sitting here in our in our media room in in the Reagan in DC and and we feature here kind of images of, of Reagan just doing that, taking it to the American people as as he would say, um, and making the case and having the confidence that um, you know, the argument, the case would persuade the American people and, and, and change the polls or, or or where the American people were. Just staying on this this theme, you you referenced this one of your first references in the speech to Reagan in terms of how he responded to the Birch Society, and this kind of interesting and significant bit of history, um, which you called as a, as a sterling example of how to really counter um, you know toxicity uh, and 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 bad ideas. Why'd you go there and, and, and you know, kind of perhaps share what you, you know, why that stood out to you? Well, I think it's one of the great examples of extraordinary leadership swimming against the tide. Mm. You know, the tide in the, in the early 1960s in the Republican Party um, was in the direction of the John Birch Society in, a, in an anti-Semitic, um, you know, uh, very negative, angry type of approach that the Birch Society had, and they were, they were moving people in the Republican Party 
um, in that direction. And it was William F. Buckley and Ronald Reagan who worked together, Buckley writing a long editorial in the National Review, mm -hmm. uh, rebuking uh, the, the John Birch Society, and then Reagan jumping in um, and publicly supporting Buckley's point of view. Uh, and, you know, in the end, it was, I think, those two men who gave people the cover mm. to do what they knew was right, which was to reject that type of, of, uh, of approach. And listen, Barry Goldwater did not completely reject it. I think it was one of the reasons he lost in 1964. Uh, and really what, what it turned out when we turned away from the John Birch Society approach, you look at the next 20 years um, of presidencies, um, the next 20 years of presidencies, you know, um, a, a 16 of them were Republican presidents, Richard Nixon, Ronald sure. Reagan, uh, with only Jimmy Carter in between. Um, you had George Bush at the end, uh, his four years, George Bush 41. You, know, you wind up with 20 years uh, out of 24 after this action by Reagan and Buckley, where conservative Republicans were in the White House. Um, I think that's evidence in and of itself that the American people like the shift in tone and the shift in policy away from what the Birchers were talking about. And it was Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley who did it. And it probably was good politics. It's the politics of addition, right? I mean, how do you go ahead and you get a, a, a majority, a winning coalition? You can't alienate and you can't go ahead and, and, and reduce by, you know, saying here are the people who aren't welcome. I mean, I just I, I got to imagine that's that's what it takes to. I mean, you've been elected to office to have a winning coalition. There's no question that um, we cannot rely just on our own party for victory. Um, there are very few states in this country where either party can do that. And certainly in a national election, you cannot. Um, you know, in New Jersey, which is a heavily Democratic state, as you know, uh, you know, I wound up getting well over 60 percent the first time and over 70 percent the second time of the votes of independents, in addition to 95 plus percent of Republicans. And the last time, nearly a third of Democrats. Hmm. You know, you got to build coalitions where people believe in you believe you're honest, and they don't have to agree with you, Roger, about everything that you say. I mean, I used to say to voters all the time, if you're only going to vote for the candidate you agree with 100% of the time, then look in the mirror. You're the only candidate you'd ever vote for. <laughs> you're the only person you agree with 100% of the time. So let's not have those litmus tests. And I know Reagan was very, very keen on that idea, that you know the idea of someone who agrees with you 70 or 80% of your time is not your 20% or 30% enemy. He's yeah. your 70 or 80% friend. And that's the kind of thing I think our party has to get back to. Well, not, not only, obviously, you have deep policy experience and interest and, and, and public service we discussed earlier, but you are one of the most insightful uh, kind of analysts of politics, right? Just kind of the winning and losing and, and how you get elected. You know, you're, you're talking about this bit of history, and perhaps it was good politics to get a winning coalition, but now you got to win a primary, and these primaries are, are are places where increasingly you have to appeal to the most extreme marginal element to get through. Right? Give me your take on on how you can win the primary, perhaps even a state like New Jersey, but it gets increasingly difficult in in the redder states, and then at the same time, be uh, an electable uh, Republican for the general. Authenticity, Roger. I mean, listen, you have to be yourself. And if you being yourself is not good enough to win, um, then that's the way it goes. 
But I think you have to be who you are. I think the public, more than any particular ideology right now, even in our own party, we saw this with Donald Trump, by the way. You know, Donald Trump was in many ways very different than Republican orthodoxy had been right. over the 20 or 30 years before he got the nomination. Uh, but what I think people saw in President Trump um, was a certain authenticity um, that, that it was appealing to them uh, at that time. And so, you know, I think the first and most important thing to win any election, primary or general, is authenticity. My mother used to say this to me all the time. She said, you know, Chris, be yourself. And then tomorrow you don't have to try to remember who you pretended to be yesterday. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think it was great advice when I was a kid. And it's been great advice now as I, as I head into my, uh, my later adult years that it's just the easier way to go. So I don't think we should analyze it from a philosophical perspective, Roger. I think it's about, it's about authenticity. It's about being genuine, saying what you really believe. And I think that most people will look at that and say, if I believe that person is speaking from the heart, uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to give that person a chance to vote for them. And I, I give you one last example. Sure. I mean, I'm the first pro-life governor since Roe versus Wade in New Jersey. And I was elected twice. Now, this is a state that usually runs about 70 percent pro-choice in polls. Yet, you know, my reelection, I won 61 percent of the vote. You know, what that tells you is that for some people, it's not the most important issue. But what it also tells you is even those people who disagreed with me on that issue found enough things where we did agree that they were willing to support me. That's the kind of way you have to build a winning candidacy, I think, now. And I think that's always been the case. You know, I brought that home. That's a great point. Good example. I mean, to, to be pro-life in a state like New Jersey, how, how does that make any sense? And you just explained it. The, the Reagan Library, not as part of the timing for choosing series, but had Amy Comey Barrett come and speak recently, Supreme Court Justice, of course, uh, uh, Trump nominee and and uh, strong record of, of being pro-life. And, and as a result, given conservative place in the court and, and, and what it meant, a um, lot of attacks against her in, in the lead up and during her nomina nomination, ultimately, of course, confirmed. But you sit down and you listen to someone like Amy Comey Barrett and you see just kind of this authentic, real person. You can't help, you know, but, but realize that the, the headlines and the kind of demonization and trying to make her define her by a very important issue, but one issue uh, doesn't fly. And, and, and it's actually you know, not the story. No. And I think right now, if you looked at public favorability ratings, she's probably the most popular of the Supreme Court justices. Huh. And I don't think that has anything to do with her opinions. I think it has everything to do with who they saw her as as a person that this is somebody who they believed was genuine, good wife, good mother, um, hard worker, um, great story, personal story in terms of her own education and her own hard work as a, as a law professor and a judge. I mean, it's a great story. Yeah, and, yeah. and American people still love great stories. And that's one of the things Ronald Reagan understood better than any president in my lifetime. He understood the power of the story and of telling someone's story. And I'm sure that came in part from his years as an actor. Sure. He understood the power of words and the power of a well-told story. And I think Amy Coney Barrett is a well-told story. And I think that's why the American people overwhelmingly support her. Yeah, uh, great point. Um, I thought it was just because we finally had somebody who didn't go to law school at Yale or Harvard. <laughs> that didn't hurt either. <laughs> um, let me ask you one more for your speech, and then we'll, we'll jump to perhaps getting reactions to some of the other subsequent 
uh, speeches are time for choosing series. Uh, you had a line in there about we need to learn from the 2020 election. So part of that is what we just discussed, right? just being authentic here, right, and 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 having candidates and 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 an approach that is real. What else would you say is is you know, as Republicans look to the midterm, we'll get to that in a little bit, and and then beyond 2024. Whether you're you're on the stage or advising somebody who's on the stage. What's the lesson they have to learn? Because obviously 2020 did not work out well for Republicans, not in the White House, don't have a majority in the Senate, don't have a majority in the House. No. Look, I, I think a couple of things. I think it's a mixed message, Roger. I think first, we didn't do badly down ticket. We actually added 15 seats in the House. We actually flipped the governorship. We flipped two state house, state house chambers. So down ticket, Republicans didn't do badly. And we actually won some Senate races that people thought we couldn't win. But then we went ahead and lost two Senate races that we shouldn't have lost. And we lost the presidency, which we shouldn't have done. You're talking about Georgia, of course, right? Yes, Georgia. I'm talking yeah. about um, uh, both Kelly, Kelly Loeffler and, and David Perdue. And we lost those races, in my view, because um, the, the country got overwhelmed by President Trump's personality. They got overwhelmed by the anger and the vendettas and all the rest. And we lost suburban, educated voters um, by a significant margin. Usually those are pretty reliable Republican voters. They turned out not to be not only across the nation in many of the key states, but most particularly in Georgia. And then when President Trump went down to Georgia in the runoff election for both Senate seats, he spent most of his time talking about how he thought he had been wronged in the 2020 election that had been stolen, not presenting any evidence for that, just saying it, and not spending the time on talking about the differences between David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler and their Democratic opponents. And we lost. And that lost a majority in the Senate, brought us to a 50-50 tie. And we have seen so much bad policy as a result that what we need to learn from the 2020 election is Voters vote about tomorrow, not about yesterday. Voters want to be spoken to in a way that doesn't hurt their ears. <laughs> they want to be spoken to in a way where they're being told about what things we're going to do to make their future and their children's future brighter and better and more filled with opportunity and freedom. And those are basic concepts of America, but they're what keeps Americans getting out of bed every morning, uh, going to their jobs, taking care right. of their families. So I think that's what we have to learn from the 2020 election. And we cannot continue to have this grievance politics. I, you know, one thing I said recently to a group uh, of Republicans that I was appearing before in New Hampshire that we've got to decide, are we the party of me or the party of us? You know, for the party of me, we're going to continue to be the grievance party, how I've been wrong, how I got the election stolen from me, looking backwards. Or are we going to be the party of us, where everything we do and say is about for the greater good, for the rest of the American people, for us? And I think that's a big, big decision for us to make in these primary elections, both in 2022 and in 2024. Me versus us. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh Let's go into a couple of policy areas. I'll, I'll hit on um, a couple of what came out of the, the speeches we had. But but before we go to some of the speeches uh, from other leading voices, this idea of me versus us, grievance versus future uh, forward-looking, uh, Heritage Foundation, leading think tank, uh, uh, thought leaders for conservative movement, 
they'll send out funding, uh, fundraising emails. And I engaged the president of Heritage, a wonderful guy, about this, where they say big tech is the enemy of the state, right? You know, kind of almost like right up there with China or something. Where does that fit in? I mean, is it good politics for Republicans to come out and say big tech's enemy of the state? I mean, that's prior to uh, Elon Musk acquiring Twitter. But how does that fit into the construct, a tangible example uh, to what you're just talking about? Well, look, I think it's much, much smarter to say that big tech has shown its liberal bias. And that as a result, we have to do everything we can to counter that with the information we put out. There's no question that companies like Twitter, prior to Elon Musk's uh, purchase, and we'll see what it looks like once he takes over. You, you got to like uh, that, though, right? The, how how taking a public company and the free market wields its way in, and you got a guy like Musk who can say, I'll have that. I mean, look, I love the fact that somebody can can look at something and say, $43 billion? I'll buy it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think— I think that's like, and you think about where Elon Musk has come from and what his life story has been, pretty amazing story there too. And yeah. so, yeah, I think it's a great story. Um, and I hope that what he does is make great use of it um, mm. and great use of this opportunity because he can strike a real blow for freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, and honesty. You know, the biggest problem I think people have with social media and what they found out about them over time is that they haven't been honest with us. You know, that they did have an agenda. You know, they said, we're just going to be a bulletin board for America. We're not going to edit. Then we find out they are editing mm -hmm. and choosing and making value choices that they're on their own value choices. So what I say, I think it's much too blunt an instrument to say big tech is the enemy of the state. What I think is much smarter to say and much more accurate is to say that big tech has a liberal bias. We need to acknowledge it and we need to counter it. And by the way, if they're going to decide to edit with that liberal bias, then they need to stop getting the legal protection from being sued. Right, then right. if they're going to be like every other media provider who edits and makes decisions, then those decisions need to be held up to scrutiny in our courts of law. And I don't understand why Facebook or, or Twitter or Google um, would ever hesitate um, from being exposed to our system of justice. Mm -hmm. In terms of social media, what what you know Donald Trump of course President Trump made great use of it until he couldn't. Do you think a president ought to make use of social media and Twitter? I mean, was that an innovation that's going to stick with us? President Biden, eh, not nearly the same, uh, regardless of you know the tone, but just making that uh, a piece of of his White House, almost like he's going to bore you with his tweets, so you don't pay attention to them, as opposed to President Trump, where it's like I'm going to. You know, get around the media, quote unquote, media bias, and I'm going to go speak directly to American people. Well, look, uh, you know, if you think back when I first got elected governor, which was now 12 years ago, um, we were the first statewide officials to make make broad use of YouTube, which was the big cutting edge social media at that time. And I got you know started being called the YouTube governor all around the country because we would take town hall meetings or press conferences or speeches, my, my, my team would cut them immediately um, while I was still in the hall uh, and get them posted up on, on YouTube. And it had an enormous impact on our ability to persuade. So I think we should use all those tools at our disposal, but like everything else, use them smartly, right. use them responsibly, use them in a way that helps to forward your argument in a, in a positive fashion um, and, and, and shine light on the truth of a topic. 
I don't think that any politician should any more rely on the, the conventional mainstream media to get their message out there. I think there has to be an element of the use of social media to be able to get your story out there. Uh, another piece we talk about is you know, positive element you're emphasizing. Um, we had Senator Tom Cotton come and, and participate in the Time for Choosing series. Really thoughtful speech, but it was pretty dark in, in some ways and um, was heavy on law and order. And you know, former prosecutor, you know, you've not only talked about law and order, right? You, you lived it in terms of your professional life, and, and we hit on that at the outset. Um, where does that fit, that issue about just criminal justice and, 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 and Tom Cotton was against the First Step Act and he continues to hit against it. And of course, the rise in crime in our cities. Um, is Senator Cotton right to focus on it? And, and do you share kind of the approach and the way he's, he's focusing on it? How does that fit in, in your mind, as we look towards 2022 and, and beyond? Well, look, when I ran for governor in 2009, I ran predominantly on the credential of being a prosecutor and having been an effective prosecutor. But I don't think you need to make it dark. I think that the use of law and order is, is one of the most hopeful things that we have in this country, that we have a system of justice where people, when they commit crimes or are accused of committing crimes, they're arrested, they're given the right to counsel, they're given the right to a trial by a jury of their peers, and then they're ultimately given the right to appeal all of those things. We should just let that system work. And we're not letting it work right now because liberal policies are tying the hands of police officers, are tying the hands of prosecutors who say they don't want to prosecute certain crimes. When that message gets us out to the criminals, well, the criminals say, great, you're not going to prosecute them, I'll commit them. And you look at New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, so many of our major cities, Baltimore, uh, Washington, uh, Boston. They're overrun with crime right now, and it's because we've sent the wrong message. So I don't—now, I'm someone who, who supported the First Step Act. Okay. Um, and, 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 you know, we in New Jersey did criminal justice reform, but we did it the right way, Roger. We said, look, for those nonviolent criminals who are in on nonviolent offenses, we're going to give them an opportunity um, to be able to, make, to, to, to be released um, prior to trial um, and then face trial without having to sit in jail the entire time. On the flip side, what we got in return for that was a constitutional amendment that absolutely permitted judges to take someone's violent history into account when deciding whether to grant them bail at all. Mm. So what we did in New Jersey was the truly violent sociopaths stay behind bars from the minute they're arrested until they have their trial and then go back there if they're convicted. But those who are not causing violence on our streets, um, they're allowed to go back out on the street. Um, come to their court date and face whatever punishment they may need to face um, if they're convicted. What happened in New Jersey? We wound up closing two state prisons as a result. And we wound up having crime go down at the same time. So I don't think that this needs to be discussed as a dark issue. Um, also, the Camden Police Department was, when I became governor, was stewarding over what was called the most dangerous city in America. So what did we do, Roger? We fired the entire Camden City Police Department, every one of them. And we started a new Camden County Police Department, Metro Division, paying the same amount of money we paid to the old police officers. We added 100 new police officers because we didn't have to deal with their union um, in the way that we did before. We put more cops out on the street. We put more of them on foot and on bicycle. And 
We train them. We train them in community policing and we train them in violence de-escalation. And what we see in Camden, um, when we had the, the riots all across this country, we saw our white police chief marching with a leading African-American uh, man um, in protest to police killings. In Camden, there was no violence because people now see police officers as part of the team. They see them as protecting them. So this can be done in a way that doesn't need to be dark and foreboding. What is dark and foreboding are the, yeah. are the conditions on some of our city streets right now. And we need a smart, experienced Republican leading the country to be able to bring us good policy that will decrease that crime and make the streets safe, but also continue to provide second chances to people um, who are reformed and who want to get their lives back. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to hit on, because you don't, you don't seem to be drawing the line the way that Senator Cotton uh, did in his, his speech between the First Step Act and the rise in crime. I mean, it seems to be, in your mind, they could be complementary, First Step Act and restoring safety well, uh, in our streets. Yeah, look, Roger, I mean, I'm sure that, 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 that Tom just misunderstands it. The First Act is regarding federal law. And what we're seeing and the violence we're seeing in our cities is based upon the cities and the states not doing their job. You're not talking about, oh, people are being arrested by the FBI, right. the DEA and ATF, right. and, they're, and, and they're being released. That's not it. We're talking about violent crime that is prosecuted by uh, local prosecutors like the Manhattan DA in New York or the San Francisco DA, the Los Angeles DA, um, the Chicago DA, but they're not prosecuting. And that's the problem. And the people who arrest those violent criminals, overwhelming, over 95% of the time, are local police officers, um, not the FBI or the DEA or ATF. So I think Tom's just probably mistaken, uh, conflating those two. Um, in well, I mean, the it's end. definitely it's one that's in his purview, sitting in the Senate at the federal level, right? And you know, kind of we'll get into this little difference between a, a senator's perch and perspective versus versus a governor. But but it's it, it's it's a great point, right? And 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 uh, you're right. It's 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 really at the state and local level where we're seeing these problems emerge in terms of not managing and not prosecuting and not reinforcing the police, and 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 as a result. Uh, we're seeing this rise in crime. One other issue, uh, just to pivot, uh, we had um, someone, uh, obviously you know well, uh, Peggy Noonan, uh, trustee of the Reagan Foundation, of course, uh, famous as a former Reagan speechwriter and columnist for the Wall Street Journal. In, in her speech, it was, it was interesting because as much as she was championing President Reagan and Reagan's legacy, she was very clear that from a policy perspective, it's no longer going to going to cut it to uh, try to rehash almost the foundation of, of, of what was, you know, Reagan's policies of, you know, national defense, you know, small government, you know, federalism, uh, social um, conservatism. And in particular, she honed in on the size of government and, and, and made the argument that, listen, we might want to prevent growth in government. But government's not getting smaller, and Republicans have to recognize that um, you know the role of the federal government in in the lives of American citizens is is almost like a fixture. My words, not hers. Uh, in in the 21st century, curious to get your re reaction to that. Uh, obviously, you, your experience in the as as a governor, but more broadly as a um, you know leading voice in the Republican Party. Well, look, I, I think that that Peggy um, is is partially correct and partially incorrect. So let me talk about the part where I think she's incorrect. You know, 
we're talking about growth in the size of government over the last couple of years that has been breathtaking. Mm. When you talk about the $6 trillion that was spent on COVID, um, and you talk about the $1.9 trillion that has driven us into this inflationary recession that we're in right now, um, that has to be reined back. Now, do I think we're going to be eliminating major programs in the future? That's going to be a lot harder to do, but I will tell you, I think the American people are tired of the taxes they pay. I don't think they want to pay higher taxes. And if they don't, and we no longer can borrow at the level we're borrowing because of all we borrowed, and I think rightfully during COVID, I think you're always going to find there was some waste in there, but I think we needed to face this, you know, 100-year pandemic in a way that allowed us to preserve the economy as best we could and keep people on their feet. But that's where we got to make this smaller, Roger. Um, and so in that part, I think she's wrong. Where I think she's right is that it is very difficult once the government starts giving away something for free to take it back. How many times did we hear me and lots of other Republicans say they wanted to repeal and replace Obamacare right. during the, 15, the 14, 15, 16 cycle? In the meantime, we got control of the government and we didn't do it. Right. We had the House, the Senate, and the White House, and we didn't get it done. And so I think what happens is when people get used to a benefit the government gives them, it becomes much, much harder to take it back today than it was when Reagan came into office in 1981. And so that's part of what we have to come to grips with. doesn't mean we can't do some of it, but it probably means that you know, we can't do as much as Ronald Reagan had hoped to do or even got done. Do you think the the rise and dependency of entitlements? You mentioned Obamacare, obviously, of Social Security. Um, you have uh, education, right? These are things that Americans have come uh, to expect and to rely on. You know, from the Reagan outlook, his concern about the growth in government was ultimately was an assault on individual freedom. Is that a concern for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it is a undercutting of personal responsibility. The fact that President Biden is now talking about eliminating college debt is offensive to every person who took college debt and then took the time and the effort and the responsibility to pay it back. You know, Roger, I wouldn't have been able to go to college without student loans. My family was of middle class means and we would not have been able to pay for college without those loans. Um, it took me 10 years to pay them back. And I didn't like making that payment every month. I would have loved to have that extra cash floating around to do some fun stuff <laughs> in my young married life. But both my wife and I had student loans and it was our responsibility to pay them back. We didn't feel like we were being taken. We got a great education in return for the money that we borrowed and used to pay for that education. And I think it's it's the most sterling example right now of how this expansion of government not only undercuts freedom, it undercuts the sense of personal responsibility and accountability. You can't just borrow this money and then say, oh, well, I don't want to pay it back. I don't like it. I mean, you know, it's just not right. And if you're going to borrow it, you got to pay it back. And I think in the end, most people find it was worth the investment that they made. But you do that and you risk losing the 18-year-old to 30-year-old demographic. Or is this the example where you lead on it and, and you think you can, you can win? I think you lead on it and, and you can win because in the end, what you need to explain to people is 
It's not for free. Someone's paying for it. And the people who are paying for it are most likely the same people who also pay back their student loans. Right. There is an issue of fundamental responsibility and character. You incur a debt, you pay it back. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's not like you incurred a debt for no reason. You incurred a debt in order to get a great higher education. And you got it. And if it takes you 10 years like it took me to pay it back, then you pay back every dime of it with interest, you've accomplished something. And I feel like for those folks who borrowed that money and paid it back, to let folks now, just because the era we live in, be ones who walk away from it is, is, is insulting. And it, it does not help enhance our freedom. In fact, it restricts it. And it undercuts the idea that everyone needs to, you know, to have personal responsibility for what they do. Let's stay on the policy for a minute and, 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 and different facet of this entitlement discussion. Then um, Kent, have a discussion with you about talking about uh, politics and the midterms and what we should be focusing on. I think it was an article about the national affairs, but it's been covered elsewhere that if you look at how entitlements grow, now first you have this just ridiculous case where the Congress and the really the, the political branches get all spun up over our discretionary spending. But, you know, two thirds of what we're spending is on autopilot on entitlements that the Congress really is not impacting one way or another. And those entitlements of the benefits we were just discussing continue to grow year over year. And part of the reason is there's pressure on it is because drawing the line of terms of who gets and who doesn't becomes impossible because whoever's right on that border always will say, well, if I'm paying taxes and I'm making $75,000, but the person making a year making $74,990 or not, well, I should be in that camp. And so the result is you keep on moving the line until you get these gargantuan entitlements that is inclusive over more than people than originally intended for those who legitimately need it from a public policy standpoint, from safety net, and making sure that you know we're taking care of our people who can't take care of themselves. Give me your, your, your take on that trap, and uh, how do we get you know, the two-thirds of our spending under control, whereas the people who are elected actually don't even touch it year to year? Well, look, what we need to do is be honest with the American people and talk to them in an honest way about what the cost of these things are. I think people don't really know it or understand it most of the time, Roger, because they are on autopilot. So part of it is going out and talking to the American people about choices. Hmm. One of the things I loved about the, the, the time for choosing speech is that's what governing is. It is the time for choosing. When you have the opportunity to be a governor, to be a president, Every day is a time for choosing. Every day is a day when you have to make choices and the American people have to make choices about what our priorities are. And I think they haven't been, you know, you haven't had a leader of recent times who willing to go out there and say to them, here's what it's costing us. Here's what it's preventing us from investing in. And, and, and here's why there might be ways that we can provide for those who really need it, um, but not be doing things that bust the budget. Um, now, those are hard conversations to have. Because um, you're going to, you know, inevitably, you're going to disappoint some people, as, as you talked about in your, um, in your lead up to the question. But if you're looking to be loved by everybody in political office, you know, go buy a dog. You're better <laughs> off, <laughs> you know, right. being loved by the dog than you are going to be by all the people. You're, there, if, if you get 50%, you're having a good day. Right. And, and you, when you can build beyond that, you're having a great day. 
Um, and that's what you should be shooting for. But in the end, what you have to do is make the choices in a republic like ours that the people sent you there to make and not just punt it to the next guy. Listening to your response to that, it, clearly you're drawing from the experience of being a governor, being a, a chief executive and having to make these decisions. Governor Christie, how important is it for elected leaders, our presidents, to have that governing experience? And, and as you look out in the field in 2022, here's where I'm going to pivot you know, to, to your role right now. You're on the Republican Governor Association's Victory 2022 board. You're looking at these races. Now, let's comment on the importance of having someone who has served as a governor, as a chief executive, but also what do you see out there? What's the talent pool like and, and, and how is it going to balance for Republican governors? Well, look, I think first off, ex governmental executive experience is incredibly important. And, and if we didn't believe that, let's look at the last 12 years of presidents, now going into 14 years of presidents. We've had two United States senators and a businessman who ran a family business in New York. Um, it just doesn't prepare you. It doesn't prepare you for dealing with the bureaucracy. It doesn't prepare you for the type of decisions that you're going to need to make. It doesn't prepare you for putting the armor on that you need to put on to make the difficult decisions and continue to soldier forward um, as a public servant. So I think it's incredibly important to have gubernatorial experience um, to be a president. Uh, and I think that legislative experience, while good experience, is completely different and doesn't leave you a whole lot of information for how you're to run a government and a country. Um, and so I think those things are very important. As I look out, um, at the, at the, we have a lot of opportunity in 2022. You know, we're losing some governors who've been excellent. Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Larry Hogan in, in, in Maryland um, are not running for re-election, um, you know, can't run for re-election this time. And so... You know, um, we're losing some talent, but we also have a lot of talented folks out there. Uh, folks that some maybe folks haven't heard from Kevin Stitt in Oklahoma, a good, smart, conservative governor um, who is, you know, doing great on the job in, in Oklahoma. Um, you know, we have opportunities for pickups in places like Kansas, mm -hmm. uh, where there's a Democratic governor, Nevada, where there's a Democratic governor, New Mexico, where there's a Democratic governor, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan. These are all places where we have chances for Republican pickups because the Democratic governors have not been effective. Um, and so gubernatorial uh, experience, I think, is incredibly important for someone who's running for the presidency. Um, but also, when you're, you're, you look out at our prospects right now, we have a number of races across the country where we have very good, very promising candidates who I think are going to give the Democrats a real run this fall. And then we'll serve as the new bench for federal jobs um, as newly elected governors, as they start to get their feet underneath them, they're going to get an opportunity to serve potentially an even higher office. Did we leverage sufficiently governors in 2020? We had so many of the governors you mentioned uh, in 2020. We obviously lost, as we discussed before, presidential election, uh, Congress. Where were the Republican governors in, in that 2020, is that is that one of the lessons uh, in terms of that we look forward from 2020, maybe not utilizing governors enough or the right way, or perhaps that's not one of the lessons? No, look, I, I think the governors were utilized pretty well. You know, they were they were neck deep in COVID. Um, they were managing their states and setting, I think, really good examples. Because my Brian Kemp in Georgia um, set a great example of how to how to do this and do it really well. 
Um, and so we had our governors out there engaged and working hard. They were somewhat distracted politically. There's no question by the pandemic and by the responsibilities for the pandemic. But if you go back to 2016, um, you had a number of governors who were not engaged in the primary process, didn't endorse a favored candidate, uh, and, and then had some buyer's remorse afterwards that they hadn't got a candidate that would have been a little bit more to their liking. Why was and that? So, was it because there were too many candidates on the stage or was President Trump didn't know how to react? It was kind of just kind of a confusing kind of set of, uh, of candidates. I think it was different for each of them, Roger. But in the end, I think they were unwilling to take risk. And in politics, if you're unwilling to take risk, um, you know, you're not going to become a major player, I don't think. You've got to be willing to recognize that there's going to be risks sometimes. you got to take those risks. Um, and they may cut the, your way one way, and they may cut against you another time. But I don't think it should ever make you hesitate from going and taking a stand. And I think that might have been some of it. Uh, let's talk about the midterms before we close out and go to the lightning round. Um, the midterms, we have a number of issues that seem to be getting so much attention, uh, border security, education. Uh, and then you, you, you have President Trump's kind of endorsing, not endorsing. Let's start with that and then work backwards. How important is the President Trump endorsement uh, as we look at these House and Senate races uh, and the primaries playing out? Well, look, we're going to find out, Roger. Um, I suspect it's going to look less important than people suspect. And, and you know, I think he's challenging four Republican governors, incumbent governors, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Kay Ivey in Alabama, um, is being challenged. Brad Little in Idaho is being challenged. Mike DeWine in Ohio is being challenged. I think we're going to win all four of those with the incumbents. Mm -hmm. And when I say we, the Republican Governors Association is supporting those incumbents in the primaries. And I think we'll win all four of those. Uh, and that will be a, a big indicator of how things are going, because those are statewide races. Sure. Now, in the Senate and House races, I think it's going to very much on the House going to depend on what type of district it is. It's a really ruby red district. You're probably not going to have a lot to worry about. Um, but in the Senate, we're going to see he's with uh, President Trump's with Dr. Oz. Uh, it was one of his endorsements. In Pennsylvania. Uh, recently, yep. In the Pennsylvania Senate race, you know, Ted Budd in, in North Carolina. Um, there have been a number of them. We're going to see he's endorsed against Lisa Murkowski in, in Alaska. I find it hard to believe that Lisa could lose that, but we'll see. Um, and so, you know, we're going to find out, Roger. I don't think we yet know. Um, but what I feel out there on the on the campaign trail is that some of that influence is sliding off of them. All right. Well, I have to ask this question after you gave the 2022, you know, midterm answer. Let's just say it's as you suspect. Those four governor races where the RGA is supporting the incumbents, President Trump has chosen not to. You got the Alaska race. You got the Pennsylvania race. You know, enough of these examples to see that President Trump's endorsements are not holding sway in terms of outcomes. Does that even matter in 2024 uh, for people who are thinking about running or President Trump's own calculus in terms of whether he puts his hat in the ring again? I don't know, but it shouldn't. In the end, I think if you're deciding whether to run for president or not, and you're making that dependent upon whether someone else is running or not, unless it's your brother or sister, you know, I don't think you should be deferring to anybody. Um, and I think to the extent you say you will defer, to me, that's disqualifying. For say it one more president. time. Explain that. So basically, you know, there are examples out there, won't name names, but there seems to be this 
uh, a number of people, let's say, with presidential timber, speculation that they may run in 2024, and they are not speaking clearly as to whether or not they'll run, clearly trying to get a sense of whether President Trump will, will, will run again. In your mind, that is disqualifying. It is. And, and look, and it's more than trying to, you know, playing acute and trying to wait. They, a number of them have flat out said, if he runs, I will not. Um, I think if you believe you've got the wherewithal to be president of the United States, um, you shouldn't worry about who else is running. You should get out there and tell your story to the people of the United States and sell your vision. Um, for the future, without regard to whoever else is in the race, um, but I, you know, so I think that you know that's a that's an issue that will confront come 2023, um, when I assume that uh, Donald Trump will make his decision, and a lot of other people will make theirs as well. One more issue before we go to lightning round. This is a great conversation. We, we thank you for joining us. You know, we've talked. Benefited from your experience as prosecutor, governor, uh, somebody who's just got a great understanding of politics and, and, and the kind of the analysis involved in looking at races. One other one that you're known for is just a great debater. Uh, you're, you could be like the slayer in chief on, on a debate stage um, and certainly someone who commands the attention on, on the debate stage. You've done it. Clearly, we've seen it uh, in terms of presidential uh, primary debates. And then of course, you've famously prepped others for debates. The uh, Republican National Committee, the chairwoman, Ron McDaniel, uh, in April uh, announced that Republicans will not be participating in, in debates um, led by um, the Commission on Presidential Debates. Um, does that matter? How do you view that, view that as someone who clearly uh, has a lot of experience with, with these types of debates? Well, look, Roger, I, I just think that um, I think that the, the party is right. I mean, I, I think the Commission on Presidential Debates has become a partisan enterprise. Uh, and from the, the moderators they select to the kind of questions that are asked, the intervention back in 2012 of Candy Crowley in the middle of a Mitt Romney answer, um, you know, the, 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 the malfunctioning microphones in the first debate in 2016 for Donald Trump, but not for Hillary Clinton. I mean, you go on and on, and then they're setting the rules for a second debate in 2020 that neither candidate had agreed to, uh, resulting in the cancellation of it. Listen, let's face it, before the creation of the commission, presidents were able or candidates for president, were able to manage scheduling debates. The public is used to seeing debates. They will not stand for there not being any debates. So it's going to be under what parameters? And if and and, and Republicans should have a, a stronger voice in who the moderator is going to be and how it's going to be conducted. So when their candidate comes in prepared, he or she can do their best, not worry about collateral damage. So let the campaigns negotiate it. You get the the campaign chairs do that, and 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 you know we don't need this kind of intervention of of an unelected commission. No, absolutely not. And you know, as well, most of the time happens, we may get temporary hold of these commissions, but most of the time, the people who love government control the commissions, and that's the Democrats. <laughs> All right, let's jump to lightning round. Governor Chris Christie, great to have you on. This is where we ask our guests to share their favorite book on President Reagan, their favorite uh, speech by President Reagan, uh, and their favorite Reagan quote. We'll take all three, two, or just one, whatever you have to share with us before we wrap up. My favorite Reagan, the book is a tie. I, I mean, one of them Reagan wrote himself, his diaries. The, the, the book of diaries is really fascinating. But in terms of a book about Reagan, my favorite one is uh, Craig Shirley's book, um, Rendezvous with Destiny. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that's a really, really good book um, on, on President Reagan. My, my favorite Reagan speech, 
Um, again, this would be a close one. I'm, I'm going to give it to the first inaugural because I think he so set the tone for what his presidency was going to be and did so in a way that was so dignified but so strong. Uh, and I can't disconnect it from that speech being given and the hostages being released. Yep. That the power of leadership, of strong leadership, having a real impact. So that was that was probably my favorite speech. Although my second favorite one, which is a very close second, was his speech in explaining his firing of the uh, the professional air traffic controller. <laughs> yeah. um, and and you know and again the no nonsense Ronald Reagan, the telling it like it is, the man who kept his word. Um, I think that's I I, I think that's great. Um, and look. I, I, I would, you know, I went through this when I saw your what your question was going to be to think about it. But I do think that that President Reagan's farewell address, you know, and talking about the shining city on a hill. And I know so many people talk about that with him, but I think they do because it's so evocative mm. of who we want to be as Americans, in my view, and how Reagan didn't have to have. Po, you know, communication explained to him how to talk to us because he was one of us. He like was one of us. And so when he talked about that shining city on a hill, he was reaching inside the heart of every American who really wants to believe that that's what our country is to others, is to us, and will be for our children. And uh, so that would be my favorite. Governor Chris Christie, thank you so much for being on the show. Roger, thanks for the opportunity. It's a great conversation. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Fantastic. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.